Hello and welcome to Off the Record episode 2.4. Thanks for joining us again. If last week was your first time tuning in, it's going to be a little different. We only do episodes like that every couple weeks, we hope. But we got some really cool stuff planned, and this episode is pretty awesome. The first thing I got is a talk with Bands in Town, which is a great service that helps you not miss concerts, and if you're a band, helps you get more people out to their concerts. And then the second one is more of an informational one about how Payola is rooting the music business, and it's actually a really fun interview, despite that sounding like it could kind of be a little bit boring. So check it out. Following is an interview with Bryce Carr and Leah Taylor, who both work at Bands in Town, a service I really, really love. Not only do I think it presents some of the best opportunities for free music promotion and getting more people out to your shows, as a music fan, I've just noticed I've stopped missing when my favorite bands come to town. So I thought it would be really cool to talk to these two about how you as a fan can use them more, and as well, how if you're helping any bands out in any way, what tools they have to help you promote a band. Check it out and make sure to download the apps they have after you listen to this interview. What I'd first like to start with is, can you tell me, as a music fan, how Bands in Town makes your life as a music fan better? I I actually started using Bands in Town right around the same time that I joined and immediately got very, very excited about being a part of this company and our mission since we really do what we say we do, which is never miss another live show. We are probably the best in the business as far as having the biggest database of live concert events. I think there's over 250,000 events at any given point. And we are also very timely with pushing out those types of emails and alerts and push notifications, social media posts from the artists that are using our platform, as well as from the booking agents and the ticketing agents who push their events to us um, and getting all that information out to the fans. So um, I am a live music fan myself and go to probably anywhere from two to five shows a week, um, depending on who's in town in New York. It's a very active place, and I I use it consistently to keep on top of all of the different tours that are happening. Awesome, yeah. I mean, my biggest thing is I was the, and why I wanted to speak to you guys, is I was the king of the night I'd get into a band, I'd look on their website, and I'd say, you know, I really want to see them next time they come out in town, and I see that they played an hour ago, and you guys have helped me alleviate that. I'm curious, what's the best way for people to start following the bands they want to follow with you guys? I know there's Spotify, or you can manually sign up. What's the best and easiest way you guys have seen for fans to stop missing shows and add bands to their Bands in Town account? By by far, the easiest way is to download our Bands in Town Concerts app on your mobile device. It's really great how it works. It'll scan your music that you have locally, and then you can link in different music sites, uh, such as Spotify or your last FM account. We can also pull from the artists that you like on Facebook or Twitter. And then we'll notify you based upon uh, the musical DNA that we create for you. And we'll notify you when those artists have shows coming up in your city. So you'll be able to see um, a ticket link that will come in as a push notification if you have your push notifications turned on. If you're more of an email person, that you can have those emails sent to you. And, you know, it's, it's just amazing to see how many tickets when I look at the ticket clicks that we're getting during an on-sale, uh, how many ticket clicks we're pushing to fans from these different mediums. 40% of the tickets for any given show are said to go unsold specifically because fans aren't 
uh, in the know about that show. Um, there's edge ranking on Facebook. There's uh, just all this garbage that gets in the way. And we're really working to make sure that fans are able to find out about these shows and, and buy tickets. Awesome. And so to clarify, just so everybody knows, there's no fee for a fan to do this. There's no fee for bands to sign up. That is entirely correct. You guys have been launching a lot of cool things for musicians lately. One of the things I saw that I feel like is very underutilized a few months ago was the ability to message uh, the fans that are attending a show. Can you explain some of that product? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting. We've done a great job over the years of accumulating a huge number of users. And on the fan side now, we have about 18, or I'm sorry, we're now at 19 million registered users. For any given show, you can have upwards of a thousand of those users RSVPing to a specific act. So, for example, I was just looking at a Death Cab for Cutie show coming up in Madison Square Garden. There are about 800 users there that are going to that show. The management company or the label now has the ability to message those fans ahead of time and say, you know, hey, we're really excited to see you out there. Uh, make sure to grab your tickets. Uh, during the show, I've had, had artists that have said, thanks for coming out today. Let's get this party started. Stop by the merch booth and pick up our album. After the show, I've had labels go back in for retargeting and say, you know, here's a 10% off code on the band's website. Uh, make sure to grab the album there. So what we've really done is we've broken down that wall between, you know, in, in some cases we have millions of our users that track one specific artist. We've broken down that wall. You as the artist have that voice and you can really tap into people that you know spend their discretionary income on you. They care about your band or, or your, you know, you as a DJ enough to really get out there and put their money where their mouth is. And messaging is just a huge thing for us right now. We think that as Bands in Town becomes more of a social platform, that's really going to continue to take off. Yeah, I, I can see the real potential for something like that too of like, you know, it, there's always this talk of obviously like Pearl Jam kind of pioneered the thing of being able to sell a show right after it's done on CD years ago. And now that we're in a more digital age, I could really see that, you know, if you're a real music fan and signing up for the site, you could get messaged afterwards and take that home when there's so many cool possibilities of what can be done with that. Have you seen anybody do anything particularly interesting too with when the I can see also that you could message if the show gets changed or something like that. Is, is uh, What are some other ways people are using this tool? Definitely things like that. So, you know, the venue gets changed. It gets moved to a bigger room. Um, the band has to postpone for, uh, you know, a member's illness. Different things like that. It, it's a great way to, to really hit out there. Um, one thing that I saw the other day that made me smile was uh, slightly stupid. You know, some a, a group we work closely with said, a blast, they sent a blast out to all their New York fans and they said, New York, let's get this party started, swing by the merch table and get the, uh, the new album's rolling papers when you purchase the CD. So bands have really incorporated their brand into the messages that they're sending to their fans. And these messages are coming directly from the band, you know, with the image of the band and then it says the band name there. Um, so it's it's been really successful so far. Awesome. And then I saw you guys had, for a while now, you've offered for the bigger promoters a way to promote via email and some other ways to target and get people to your shows. I saw that you just opened up that platform. Can you talk a little bit about it? What we've developed over the past uh, almost two years now is the Bands and Tone promoter line of everything we do. And that's a way for you as the artist to send dedicated emails to Bands and Town users pushing whatever you'd like to push. So I've had uh, labels send out releases, send out emails pushing releases. I've had bands push out things for a uh, 
Pledge Music campaign, and then of course we work with a lot of promoters to push shows. Uh, and what you do is you basically set the the location of the fans you'd like to hit. You can set the radius of that area, and then you can say, "I want fans that like um, Maroon Five," and then I can hit all of the fans on bands in town of Maroon Five. Um, I can target that to my specific band. I can target that to Affinity bands. Uh, and then I work with, or as a musician, I would work with bands in town to put together the copy. So this email looks like it's coming, um, you know, because it is coming from bands in town. It's not something that touches the mailing list type thing. It's another welcome message from bands in town that's able to kind of push this show or push this album. And our users are so used to these emails from us. They look forward to them. So it's, it's a very welcome message that's being put out there. I just want to add to, to what Bryce just said um, about it being targeted. Just had this announcement this week that we opened up our promoter platform as a self-service platform. So the great benefit to that is, is that it lowers the premium that was initially required for people to use the service. Now, with a minimum of 3,000 emails, you can create your own email campaign, customize who it's going to go out to, when it will go out, cater that experience to the fan. And why we do have some of the highest open and click-through rates in the business is because we're really only working with people that have some type of a live music tie-in. Um, somebody who's advertising, uh, I'm, I'm not sure, like a consumer package good that wasn't somehow being sponsored by the artist or the venue, it wouldn't make sense. But, you know, to give you an example, like we've done campaigns with Live Nation, with American Express when they do their pre-sale ticketing campaigns with Insomniac, um, Warner Music Group, uh, C3 Presents. These are all the types of clients that we do business with not only pushing people to their shows to sell more tickets, but also doing dedicated email campaigns that are going to maximize their reach to additional live music fans. And I can say firsthand as a user, I hate spam email, but a lot of the times the emails I've gotten from you guys that's telling me about a show, I'm like, okay, I'm either already going to that or it was something that was welcome. So I do think that's true. It's very rare that you'll see an email from bands in town advertising something like condoms. But I never put it past. (laughs) You never know. (laughs) If, like, Kiss comes out with something tomorrow, maybe there's a tie-in there. (laughs) They would be the band. Um, (laughs) So for smaller bands, obviously they're not going to be able to afford always. uh, I think I saw the entry for advertising that way is $150. What are the tools you guys have available that can really help a smaller band start to get new people to their shows? You know, that's that's really where we shine. And the, the number one thing is that Without that band really doing anything, they're accumulating fans because a Bands in Town user on the fan side is going to like that band on Facebook and it's going to pull in to their Bands in Town uh, listing and, and they basically become a tracker. Same thing with plays on Spotify or you know local music. When a band downloads Bands in Town Manager, which is basically our central hub, uh, a way for an artist to connect with all of their fans out there, they're able to kind of unlock all these features. So they can now directly communicate with their fans via free messaging. If the band is big enough, which you know for us is, is having more than 100 trackers, they're able to see user analytics to be able to see where all of their trackers or our users are, are located. Uh, they're able to take advantage of some of our new cool things like uh, our integration with uh, our YouTube. So you can now put a Bands in Town YouTube card 
on any one of your music videos. So a fan that sees your music video is able to click on the card and go directly to all of the upcoming tour dates. There are just so many ways that we're, we've really kind of grown to help out um, the artists using our platform. And in the 13 months that I've been here, it's just been crazy to see the feedback that we're getting from managers, from labels, from small indie bands about things they want. And we're able to implement all of that into our features. Uh, today was a you know big day in the Apple realm, announcing that you'll be able through the Apple TV to have third-party apps. You know that's something that we take very seriously. We have all these fantastic tour trailers. We were having a conversation with William Morris Booking Agency, and they were saying, "Hey, when a video goes out with a tour announcement, there's an eight times higher engagement rate." And we wanted a way for all those videos to live within our system. So we said, "Hey, let's build these tour trailers where." where a fan sees the upcoming tour dates on a Facebook tab, let's embed videos there. Well, we now have a ton of videos from these bands that are they are cool, they're edgy, they promote the tour. Why not take the natural next step and, and put together a, um, an Apple TV app, a smart TV app, where fans can sit there and, and see the upcoming shows uh, in their area. So we're, we're very tied in with the Pulse. We succeed when artists succeed. And so the most important thing to us as a company is keeping artists happy. That's what brings in fans and users and all that good stuff. But we, we want artists. We want artists to uh, get more people to their shows. We want artists to sell as many albums as possible. And, you know, we're really listening for feedback there. So on the analytics side, you guys are also able to show bands something that I think has been one of the more valuable pieces of data that I don't think enough people employ, especially the smaller bands, which is that, you can see a graphical representation of where your fans are and then sh figure out where to play. Have you seen any good implementation of that? Do you see bands using that as a tool a lot? I definitely see bands using this as a tool. I see, you know, in the day-to-day -day conversations I have, this has been a big push for us right now with agents. And we very specifically had agents come to us and say, I had two offers between Cincinnati and Columbus. And I sat down with the promoters and I showed them what the numbers were on bands in town for each one of their cities. And I took their offers uh, and compared them against each other and picked the one that made more sense for my band. So this is, this is a tool that is being used by agents. It's being used by indie bands. It's helping them decide what room to play, uh, what cities to hit on their routing. I mean, time is precious. Touring costs money. And you want to go where you know that you'll be able to, to make the most money. So it's been a very successful tool. We're working to push that even more uh, through our mailing list and, and you know through some of the work that we do with artists. Another example I have, um, just to tag on to what Bryce said, as I was speaking with a promoter or booking agent actually at the agency group, and he said um, he had a band that was going through L.A., and he was trying to convince the venue specifically to add this band to the lineup, but the venue was not so sold on them. So he went back, he pulled together what he called all of the tools from his digital toolbox, which was the Spotify plays, the Facebook likes, the Twitter follows, but really the most concrete metric he could show the venue was the bands in town trackers because those are people that are really saying I'm going to go out buy a ticket to your show and go and see you live if someone streams you on Spotify or if somebody likes you on Facebook it doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to pay money to come see you so long story short he was able to show this data to the venue and get that artist added to the lineup that's really great and I think that that's something um, I know people have done with next big sound in the past but this seems much more 
concrete that, you know, these fans are actually going to hear about this musician coming to town because of you guys. Right. We don't charge anything for the inclusion in the email newsletter, which goes out every Wednesday that everyone gets. It's 1000% customized. No two email newsletters are the same. And we don't charge artists to reach all of their trackers when they want to technically push out um, social posts through Bands in Town Manager to them. Um, it's kind of like what I call no edge rank, no problem. So you have 100% share of voice to your fan base. Very cool. So is there anything that goes complementary towards what you guys do that helps increase concert uh, attendance while using you guys? Obviously, as a band, you need to have a Facebook account. Um, that's actually how we verify and... Um, yeah, we do have an actual verification tool that will verify your identity because, as you know, there's many, many different cover bands out there that are on tour at any given moment. So that's how we're able to prove you are who you say you are. Um, and you also would link that up to your Bands in Town Manager account. Um, so that's technically one thing that you do need to have. Obviously, if you're hooked up to Twitter, too, that's another very important tool to be able to push your, push your messaging even further. And Bryce, I don't know if you want to add to that with some of the other social integrations with Squarespace. I know we have one coming up with Wix. Websites are very important. Yeah. I mean, there, there are quite a few things in, in terms of what I've seen bands actually implement. I mean, the cool thing about it is you can, through our platform, put any custom link you want. So through some of the URL tracking systems for ticket links, I've seen that integrated. We're working with a, a third-party merch company, sending out messages about merch pre-sale companies for, for concert on sales uh, work great with bands in town. We're very open to working with anyone out there. Uh, we keep our platform fairly open in terms of, you know, what artists are able to do, what they're able to say. Uh, and so, you know, we play nice with everyone. It is important, I think, to reiterate that we do not have any plans in the immediate future to charge the artist or the fan for access to the service. Our paths to monetization are primarily around the promoter business, um, and that's the fastest area of our business that's growing. Um, so it's super exciting for us now, as of this week, to open up that, that platform now to be a self-serve platform. And I can say that over the next few months, we're going to go even further, so you'll be able to see those minimums come down more. Um, as we are able to reach out to every band, any size of their fan base, um, if they're just getting going or if they're established and as large as Maroon 5. One of the, one of the big things for me on the artist side is that we're, we now see 80% of the Billboard Hot 100 that have uh, you know, at least one artist on that track using Bands in Town uh, or Bands in Town Manager. So we've really taken over this, this realm and we're doing a fantastic job at it. Uh, we're growing right now organically at about 500,000 new users per month. Back in January of 2010, we had around 30,000. Um, so we've, the last five years have just seen us go through the roof. Awesome. If you're hearing this music, that means that it's time for an ad. This week's episode is brought to you by a project that's near and dear to my heart. It's my book, Get More Fans, The DIY Guide to the New Music Business, which is a 725-page guide to the ideas, tools, and techniques you need to know to get your music heard in the music business today. I spent four years researching the book, writing down everything I learned about the music business, working in nearly every aspect of the music business since I was a teenager. It has just been updated for 2015, and there's over 100 pages of new or refreshed content in this year's edition. To learn more, go to getmorefansbook.com. Most interviews I do an introduction for the listener, but this time I was dealing with a guy who talked fast with a lot of charisma, so I'm just going to kind of let him do the talking. 
My name is Scott Kirby. I'm the founder of Music Revolt and the co-director of the film Kill Switch, which is about the, the Paola Law and about collusion and about the fact that the Paola Law was a law that was made with the best intent. But unfortunately, we've found out that it's a, it's a great law with a great idea, but unfortunately, it's almost impossible to execute correctly. This is a pretty informative talk, and I even learned a bunch on this subject and about how much it's played in the music business. So take a listen. Okay, Jesse, I started Music Revolt because I had been in the music industry for a long time doing a number of jobs. I got into actually being a record promoter. And I promoted Prince and Morris, Stay in the Time, and Level 42, and Laura Branigan. That's very cool. That's some of my favorite stuff of all time, right? Oh, awesome. That's great. Yeah, I, I loved it. And, and Dream Academy, I mean, we got to really re work a lot of great records at, um, at, the, at the independent record promotion company I worked for. And I got into it, Jesse, promoting my own records. Um, my friend Ben Brooks uh, worked at a company called uh, Dudley Goroff, and I was up north selling guitar strings with the Ernie Ball Company. They make slinky guitar strings, and they bought Music Man amplifiers and guitars. And Ben said, hey, I, I heard one of the songs you wrote that you sent me on a cassette. It's great. Why don't we record it? And you can come switch careers stop selling guitar strings and, and start selling music as a promotion person. So that's what I did. And after that, Jesse, I got into working for trade magazines. I worked for hits mm -hmm. and hit makers and music connection. I was the music editor and music connection and wrote and reviewed all their singles. So I've done really, I've worn a lot of hats in the music industry because it's Jesse, as you know, it's an industry where everybody that works in it has to wear a lot of hats because it's so fluid. It's so mercurial. One day you're working one job and then the next you're working another. I've had that same experience. Very cool. So tell me about, obviously, I guess you got to see from the promotion side, some of the more shady things that labels and promoters were doing to get record sales and all that being in those positions. Actually, Jesse, I saw more of the CD side working for a trade magazine. And since it's defunct, I'll mention which which one it is, but they're all the same. It was called Hitmakers magazine. And I found out at Hitmakers that my boss, whose name was Barry, I won't mention his last name, his idea of pushing music onto the radio stations was not based on what the best music was. It was based on which label paid him the most money. And I realized that that was ubiquitous. Now you're going, gee, that sounds like payola. It is payola. But the fact is, is that even with the payola law gone and the feds trying to enforce it, it was still the same problem. The labels dumped tons and tons of money into the middlemen, which were independent record promotion in promoters, Trade magazines like Hitmakers and Hits and Radio and Records and the Gavin Report and FMQB and Album Network and all these other ones, they would tump, dump tons of money into them, Jesse, and then they would put all the pressure on the radio industry. So I started Music Revolt because I thought, wait a minute, if these guys, the middlemen, are all gone, the same pressure gets put onto radio to play certain music with one big difference. Instead of these guys in the middle making all the millions of dollars who don't really have much of an impact on what records are sold, all the money goes to the radio industry that does have an impact on what records are sold. So that's how I started Music Revolt, to try to say, hey, whether the payola law is good or bad or enforceable or not enforceable, uh, pressure still gets put on the radio industry, Jesse, because of all this money. Yes, and I always found that to be one of the things that made music worse, whereas I think music is getting better now that people, you know, the world is a little bit more flat. Yeah. And that this has disappeared a bit, but obviously since you formed this, this is still happening. So can you tell us how it's morphed into what it is today from then? As I said earlier, the payola law is not an enforceable law. 
And what I realized is that what we need to do is recognize that the intent of the law is good. The intent of the law says is that labels with tons and tons of money won't be able to use money to bribe radio to play music. That's good. But see, if the law is not enforceable, and we found out over the last half century, literally since 1960, uh, when the law came into place because of a politician named Emanuel Seller, it's not enforceable. So what I want to do is say, how do we retain the idea that labels with tons of money can't force their product down the public's throats with money, but still give indie bands a chance, uh, bands on small labels? And I thought, well, maybe the answer is to remove the payola, payola law or adjust it so that synergy can exist between the people that make music and the people that distribute it. Where do you see this payola today and collusion being prominent? Um, is there any examples that the listeners can see clearly? The, the situation is, no, they can't see it clearly because everything is done behind closed doors and behind curtains. The whole point really is, is that this stuff is done on the sly. So what we need to try to do is increase awareness of this payola law and to say that the people that haven't heard of it, to go in and Google it and learn about it, and the people that have heard of it that say, wait, that's a good law, isn't it? Isn't that a law that's supposed to keep the giant labels, which are Warner, Sony, and Universal, isn't it supposed to keep them from using their money to bribe radio stations to get them to play their music, not giving a little guy a chance? And to them, I would say, research the law, because that's what it's supposed to do, but it doesn't do it. Casey Ray, who's a friend of mine, he works for the Future of Music Coalition in Washington, D.C. Does, does great work. Casey's an awesome guy. I love him. He's a very good friend of mine. I've, I've met him several times, Washington and at South by Southwest. Jesse, he determined, he told me at South by Southwest during a meeting we had, that 90% of the music on the major market radio stations comes from the three major labels. And Jesse, they're the three major labels that have most of the money. So if the payola law was supposed to level the playing field to give the cash poor bands a shot, is it working? You know, ask yourself that. If 90% of the music on the major market radio stations comes from the three labels that have all the money, you can determine yourself that the payola law needs to be revisited, looked at again, revised, amended, or whatever, but it's not working. So there's been a lot of talk about, too, that this seems to be a thing, like uh, it came out that there was basically this Spotify $20 million bribe and everything. Um, how does this, does that play into what you're talking about here a bit? Chessie, Lord, yes. That plays totally in. Because, yes, I mean, I'm glad you brought that up. Because the payola law for the first 50 years from 1960 to what, the dawn of the internet era, the, the second millennium, only dealt with the radio industry. But as you pointed out, hey, are we going to cut and paste this law so it also impacts Spotify and Pandora and Apple and Rhapsody and all the streaming services? Because it certainly hasn't made a level playing field with terrestrial radio. So are we going to say, is it going to do that for streaming? And if it hasn't worked for terrestrial radio, Jesse, I don't know how it's going to work for streaming. This is what we have to do. We have to get the smartest minds, and we're coming up with a group here. I'm, I'm living now in Worcester, Massachusetts, and we're having a conference at Worcester Polytechnic that we're putting together to ask this question. You know, who is going to be the music label's music marketing partners in the 21st century? Because right now, um, from 1960 to 2000, that was the radio industry, but it was an occupational hobby for them. They were amateurs at it. Do we want to carry that over into the streaming world? Because it hasn't leveled the playing field in the old world, and I really don't think it's going to level playing field in the Spotify, Rhapsody, Pandora world either. So inherently, though, doesn't everybody, like before, uh, when you just go to a record store, it would matter if you got the distribution, you got an end cap, 
hasn't there been though a great deal of work? Like I know Casey cited that it's ninety percent still on the radio, but it does seem that you know the greater thing is getting better. But we think this is like one of the last walls to knock down to really actually make it a more level playing field. Well, here's the scoop. If I could uh, kind of regress a little bit, I just heard a um, uh, on marketplace technology tech. Uh, APM Marketplace, I heard an interview by a gal by the it's interesting name, Cashmere Hill. And this is a very interesting story. What she did was she came out with a fake karaoke company that wasn't even real. And she just paid people for Twitter, for fake reviews. And she got all this attention on Yelp and, and um, what's Angie's List. And it wasn't even a real company. The bottom line is, is that we need to go in and find out is it possible not to have this happen on the internet on a much grander scale than the music industry? Because I wish it was that we could level the playing field. But as you pointed out, Jesse, there's already people going into the, the people that aggregate and curate music and distribute it to people to say, hey, I know you think that this is the best music to give to your listeners, but if I pay you 50 grand or 25 grand over the next month, will you put my band on your curated list? I mean, Jesse, that's already happening and that's payola. But the thing is, can we stop it? Or do we need to address it and say, how do we stop it if we can stop it? So is there any ideas on how you do stop it? No. <laughs> I, honestly, no, I don't. And this is the thing. I think what we need to do, Jesse, is people who either are fans of music or musicians themselves is to get together and get much smarter people than me involved and say, how do we stop it? But the thing is, Jesse, it's a major, major move in the right direction to get people like you and me that know there's a problem and say, this is a problem. We want the little guys on the little labels to have a shot with Sony, Uni, and Warner Brothers. Let's get people together and find out how to do that. But if you're asking me what the solution is, I have no idea, my friend. None. None. <laughs> so, I don't have any ideas. So Music Revolt is about people getting together and thinking about this and coming up with an idea. Exactly. That's perfectly put. We're not saying we have all the answers. We're just saying let's come up with what the problem is. And get people, you know, Stephen R. Covey, the guy who wrote The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, said... An amazing book. An amazing book, Jesse. Really a great book and a smart guy. Unfortunately, he died in a, riding his bicycle and falling off it, but that's another story. Oh, jeez. Yeah, bad story. He read a little thing in Wikipedia by his daughter. But anyway, he said, begin with the end in mind. So what we need to do and what we're going to do at Worcester Polytechnic, and we'd love to get you involved here and off the record, is try to get people together and write on the list, if the music industry were working effectively, what would it look like? Because, you know, we've had the, the Future of Music Coalition and Casey Ray's seminars. We've had South by Southwest. We've had the Berkeley School of Music and their Rethink conferences. But I don't know if anybody said if the music industry were actually working properly – and the little guy did have a chance to compete with the giant major labels, what would the industry look like? And that's what we have to determine. If we can get the smartest guys and think tanks and the Lawrence Lessigs of the world, who's a Stanford and Harvard smart guy. And and the guy who's doing great things running for president right now. We got a little off topic here, and then the topic came back around to lobbyists and how they affect music and every bit of our politics today. What I do want to say is that isn't it that these guys from the Friends of Israel and the gun lobby and the petrochemical, don't they go to the senators and congressmen and say, hey, we'd like you to do this? And if the senators kind of go, hey, I don't know if that's a good idea, can't they just write out a checkbook and pay them? 
to get them to do what they, I mean, that's payola. So payola goes up and down the ladder through the whole pipes of our entire system. And why are we singling out the music industry? I mean, I think far more of a greater problem in payola is, is the senators and congressmen and what's going on in Capitol Hill than what's going on in the music industry. It's much more dangerous. This determines whether or not some deranged 14-year-old kid with an assault rifle can go into a school and shoot people. We're not talking about whether a bad song gets played. We're talking about whether somebody dies. So this is the kind of payola that I find really dangerous, not what's going on in the music industry. I 100% agree with you and could not have said it better. Oh, thanks, Jesse. So, so tell me a little bit about the movie you guys made about this subject. Okay, the movie is called Kill Switch. And it's called Kill Switch, Jesse, because the payola law, again, as good as it was designed to do to level the playing field, had another very serious repercussion. Okay, And that was that it killed synergy. It killed the business relationship between the record labels and the radio industry. Okay, let's move forward to, to the year 2000. Okay, there's a switchover. People used to hear songs on the radio, other ways too, but the main way was hearing on the radio. Then they'd go into their local record store, whether it was peaches or strawberries or licorice pizza or whatever, they, they, and they bought the record. Okay, Then with the internet, it was a whole different paradigm. You heard it on the internet frequently, and you bought it on the internet. So the radio industry, Jesse, think about this. They were the ones that should have changed along with the internet. Why didn't they? Why don't you tell us? <laughs> I'll tell you because of the payola law, because they weren't in the music industry. They, they knew what they needed to do, but every time they tried to do it, somebody like a consumer watchdog group like Fair or a guy like Ralph Nader or later on a gentleman named Elliot Spitzer, who we all know about, said, oh, you can't have a business relationship together. That violates the tenant's of the payola law. So I am totally behind what the payola law tries to do, but it also made it so the radio industry couldn't be in the music industry. So when the internet came along, they wanted to be in the music industry, but the payola law wouldn't let them. So a crucial half decade went by before the original Napster with Sean Fanning and Apple's iTunes, when everybody was looking to everybody else to, to fix the problem, and the radio industry should have done it but they weren't even in the music industry because of this ridiculous racist law. So anyway, answer your question. Kill Switch is about this law, how it started in Washington in 1960 because of racists that thought that Elvis, and this is so weird, that thought that Elvis Presley, who had white skin, should play music what they thought a white performer like Pat Boone or Perry Como should play like. But he didn't, did he? He played more like uh, Little Richard or Chuck Berry. And this was considered vulgar beyond belief. Uh, Frank Sinatra said it best. He said, Elvis Presley's music is a rancid aphrodisiac. And that's, what, <laughs> that's a great yeah, quote. It's classic. But that's what they all thought. So they said, this one particularly evil man named Emanuel Seller said, the only reason that radio is playing Elvis Presley, they must be getting bribed to play him. Were they? Mm. Absolutely not. But Emanuel Seller was like uh, Steve Allen or, or uh, Frank Sinatra. He hated Elvis, so he said, well, I'm gonna make it forbidden for the two industries to do business together. So boom, out comes this law. Okay, let, let me finish with this, Jesse. Mm -hmm. That was not the problem. Yes. The government frequently makes laws that shouldn't have been made. The, the huge crime they did was, they never said, okay, we're gonna make this law in 1960. Let's revisit it in 1965, or in 1970, or 1975. Every five years, let's revisit it and see if it's doing what it was designed to do. They didn't do it. Mm. It just went into place. The, the freight train went off into the sunset, and they weren't able to ever look at it and see if it was being effective, which it wasn't. 
Very interesting, and I think that, that that's sadly is the root of many laws that plague us on the internet today, is that they were made in a time where people were so ignorant that, and now we have ridiculous patent laws and all these things, and uh, that's that's an incredible history I never knew, and I, I always think back to that story in Appetite for Self-Destruction with the um, promotion of Hall & Oates when they were trying to do the opposite, which is get Hall & Oates on black radio, and all the horrendous things they had to do for that. Well, that's very interesting. You mentioned that. That was written by a gentleman named Steve Knopper, yes. who was featured predominantly in our film. Awesome. He's one of the most intelligent guys in the music business. He's writing. featured, we do four or five interviews with him. He talks about everything from the Paola Law to the fact that the government and the radio and music industry, entertainment industry, has tried to squash every uh, technological innovation since radio because they wound up thinking it was going to be bad for the music industry when Knopper points out that in actuality everything was good for the music industry. You're a fan of the Grateful Dead to a little degree, aren't you, Jesse? No, not at all. It's one of my least favorite bands. <laughs> well, they made more money than just about any live band. And guess what live band had people set up microphones and encourage piracy and had had more free concerts than any other major touring act and made more money, The Grateful Dead. My point is, why doesn't well, the music industry take a chapter from The Grateful Dead? The Grateful well, that's Dead, a great point. That is really good. Yeah. Oh, it was brought out way by a lot of other people besides me. But The Dead made tons of money by being generous and kind and open and giving. And the record labels, the three major ones, are all corrupt crooks. I'm sorry. Yeah, I 100% agree with you. I guess Pearl Jam inherited some of that later on with the selling of their CDs after each show and all all of that of just a more capitalistic move in that direction. But I think that that's a phenomenal point is they really did let their music free before anybody else did. Uh, now, I'm sorry, Jesse, are you talking about Eddie Vedder and company or The Grateful Dead? I, I, well, I'm saying The Grateful Dead let their music be free before anybody else. Oh, yeah. They did, but speaking of Eddie Vedder and Pearl Jam, those guys were against, uh, what are the ticket masters? Yes, yes. I mean, they wanted to say, hey, we, we don't want these fat cat cigar smoking guys getting all the money. We want to have a direct relationship with our fans. And I think the music industry, the three major labels and the smaller labels too should embrace that attitude as well. Couldn't agree more. So can you tell people, uh, one, when they're going to be able to see this movie and how they can get more information on everything we just talked about? Yeah, I absolutely will. All they need to do is go to musicrevolt.org and click on the tab Kill Switch, and they can write me. I, anybody that's passionate about music is my friend. They, it's scott at musicrevolt.org, and we embrace anybody that's passionate about music, and I don't care if you disagree with me and think my ideas are crazy or you like my ideas, all I want to do, Jesse, is gather people that are passionate about music and want to see the music industry flourish and rebound as opposed to decay and shrink. And we will come up with the right ideas if we can gather those people together. One last thing. The, the film is not only about paola, it's also about collusion. Yes, but why don't you explain to us, because I think that's a term not everybody always knows. I didn't learn it until my 30s, so I'd love for you to, to talk a little bit about that. What, Jesse, did you flunk Economy 101? <laughs> if only I had even taken it. Yeah, you probably should have then. You know about Actually, I'm kidding with you. I didn't know about it either. Collusion is plain and simple. It's price fixing. And if you remember when Steve Jobs, and this might have been, I don't know, when did the original iTunes store start? I think it was 2001. Okay. He came up in front of his troops and said, we are going to charge a fixed 99 cent for music. You know, hey, remember uh, Apollo 13? 
Houston, we have a problem. That, <laughs> you can't do that. That's price fixing. He was saying that we're not going to compete in the marketplace for the, for the consumer's dollar. You can't do that. But that was not just the major labels. That was Steve Jobs. And, and people, I've had people say to me, Scott, don't you dare say a bad word about Steve Jobs. And I worship Steve Jobs. The mm -hmm. man was a genius. But as far as price fixing, can I say turd in the punch? Oh, oh okay. yeah, yeah. You can, say, you, you can go much further than that. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> he, he was a brilliant man, but that was the one thing he did. He claimed, I'm a huge music fan. But I'm sorry, man, he screwed over fans and musicians when he let the major labels collude and fix prices. And it's followed on to streaming. Look at the prices of Rhapsody. Look at the price of Apple. Look at the price of Google. Look at the price of Spotify. $9.99. $9.99. They're all $9.99. Jesse, that's collusion. That's price fixing. In order for those streaming services to do what they do, they had to get an okay from the three major labels who said, you're welcome to stream, but you've got to charge $9.990. That's illegal. That's collusion. That, that violates the Sherman antitrust law. So the film is about payola and that it's a great idea that's not enforceable. And it's about collusion, about the major labels price fixing, and that's also illegal. So I'm saying if you support them, in our opinion, you're supporting organized crime. Because fixing prices and colluding together to, to, so that they don't have to compete in the marketplace for your dollar, that's illegal. Yes. And so uh, in the film, do you guys go into how that was done and everything? We go into how it was done. And it was done when uh, the major labels were watching first, first uh, Napster and then Rockster and then LimeWire and then Casa and then Pirate Bay. And they're going, oh, no, this is years after years of going, oh, what do we do? So, so Jobs, and Steve Knopper talks about this in Kill Switch. He goes, you guys are not very smart. And this is what uh, Steve Knopper said in our film. He said, you guys aren't very smart. Why don't you just come together and sell prices, sell your MP3s on a legal store? Good idea, except the store that Steve Jobs started wasn't, wasn't legal. Every song was the same price. And it not only screws over fans, Jesse, excuse me, it screws over the bands. Hey, are you a musician? I am. I am too. Hey, what do you want to do if you want to get an advantage over your competition on Apple's iTunes store? I'd say, Steve, or who was ever running the store, my goal is to get people to hear my music. So if there's a whole bunch of songs that are 99 cents, I want to sell my song at 29 cents or 39 cents. I want people to hear my band. You, you can't do that as, a, as an artist. So you're screwed as a fan by having to buy songs at the same price. And as an artist, you can't say, I want to undercut the other people in price to get more people to hear my music. Both ways you're screwed. It's interesting, but you know, in some ways, I guess maybe that is also the thing of that maybe they see that as a flatter playing field because then no one gets a price advantage over everybody, but then you just have the access of being on the front page and all that, which is where their payola kind of comes in. I suppose you're, yeah, I see your point. However, what the free market economy law says, and it's clearly stated or in a, in a government ordinance, that prices will be determined by supply and demand market forces. Okay. Mm. Market forces, Jesse, means competition. I'm sorry, whether no matter what anybody thinks, the music industry prices on streaming sites and Apple's iTunes store and Amazon's MP3 store are not determined by that. I call it a forced economic dictatorship because that's what it is. They said, you're going to pay this much for a song and there's going to be no competition. Whether or not there's some benefit to this, it's not legal American capitalism. Uh, I, I think that that is a great way of putting it. I, I, I really liked your force market description there. Um, so this was absolutely awesome. Can you tell us one last time where they can get more information? They can get more information at musicrevolt.com.
www.thepeopleshow.org. Um, we have a great team involved. Uh, Anissa is our publicist. Emily Lanigan does marketing. Tim Muniz is my co-producer. And Patrick Marithi uh, did the film, edited it, and shot it. You can go to musicrevolt.org. And one, can I mention one other thing real yeah, quick? Yeah, please do. Okay, Jesse, we also have a program called Break 35. And Casey Ray told me this, our friend Casey Ray. He said when I – oh, Casey Ray's in the film too. Casey oh, cool. Ray's in Kill Switch, of course, because he's my friend and he's really smart. He said, Scott, after 35 years, bands can get their publishing back from the labels that they've signed with or the publishing right. houses. Do you know how important that is? Jesse, that is hu hugely important because the reason why the major labels have all this control and this vice grip on the marketplace is because they own all the band's publishing. So what we want to do is say, bands, if you've had your publishing taken for 35 years, we are a free resource to try to get it back. And for new bands that are thinking about signing the major labels, if you sign away your music publishing, you are signing yourself to a world of indentured servitude. You're a slave. They will tell you what they're going to do with your music, and if your songs hit and make a lot of money, they're going to give you scraps, and they're going to take the lion's share of the profits. Even if you're an artist who writes their own songs, plays them, sings them, and performs them. You're doing 99% of the work of why people want to buy your music, but the labels are making about 80% of the money. Tell me that's fair. That's a great, 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 great point. I think that that's very telling on the day after the happy birthday thing. I think people are going to be, uh, ruling came through. I think a lot of people are going to get to know some of these aspects a little better as there's news around it. Oh, Jesse, what was the deal? I heard about the happy birthday thing. The song was... What, so what? They, if it went into public domain as of yesterday. Ah, Hey, I'm, I don't know yeah. if you but I'm applauding. That's, that's yeah. great news. Yeah, it's, a, it's really good. Yeah. The thing, Jesse, to conclude is, is that there are, uh, there's a saying that's, um, it's that a guy who will not change his mind if his paycheck is what's on the line. In other words, all, if all that matters is his paycheck, he's going to keep the same old thinking. The thing is, is this music industry that you and I are passionate about needs a complete overhaul, wouldn't you say? I would, yes. That's what the, the people that are in charge don't want an overhaul. Even though it's dying and sinking, they're holding on for dear life to this dinosaur music system, right? So what, what we need to do, and I always say, the music industry will not fix itself. It will either stay broken or the people, that's why it's called musicrevolt.org, because we have to stage a revolution if we're ever going to fix the music industry. That is awesome and I think a great place to conclude. I'm going to make a few musical recommendations this week since I've been neglecting that. Uh, the first one is Fiddler's new record, which is titled 2, is a really good, fun, drunk, punk time. Better Off's record Milk is absolutely fantastic and one of the better punky emo records of the year I've heard so far. There's a great new EP from a band that just signed to Equal Vision that I had the pleasure of mastering from a band called uh, Water Me Down that are totally awesome. And there's a new band on Epitaph that you should check out that it's called Avian Row that just put out their first single. That is totally awesome too. Up next is a recommendation from Leah Taylor from Bands in Town. So one is for um, your blues fans, guitar, um, Anders Osborne. He's an amazing New Orleans based um, guitarist who he just put out a new album that's going to be coming out I believe any time now and is just phenomenal live so I recommend look him up on Spotify go get his new album buy a ticket to see him live he's outstanding 
And then the other new artist, which actually she's blowing up all over the place, who I adore, is Halsey. Um, she's signed to Astral Works. I saw her live at South By about a year ago. Just came out with a new album called Badlands, and she's absolutely amazing. I bet you in a year she's definitely going to be on everyone's lips if she's not already, so check her out. And one from Arkham contributor Matthew Lighton. So two recommendations, guys. Number one, I'm going to recommend Chris Stapleton's Traveler. It is a country record, which I know is a little weird, a punk podcast country record. But hear me out, folks. Um, I was in the middle of my run a couple nights ago, and Traveler, the album track, came on, and I just had to stop in the middle of my run and just kind of walk the rest of the way and listen to this record. I don't know. It just kind of hit me weirdly, but in a phenomenal way. Um, he's written for Adele, uh, George Strait, Dirks Bentley, Brad Paisley, um, and I just think that the dude's a phenomenal songwriter. You can tell he's been in some dark places. You can tell he's been in some great places as well with this record. Uh, very reminiscent of the old-time kind of country. A lot of um, pedal steel and a lot of, I don't know, authentic songwriting. Uh, I feel like a lot of modern country tries to feign authenticity with brand names like Jack Daniels and Ryan New Truck. But I think this guy just has a good balance of soul, blues, and just kind of what I think makes country really good when it can be executed well. Uh, he just did a session with NPR, the Tiny Death series, and also did a, um, a performance on The Late Show with Stephen Colbert, so definitely check those out. And listen to uh, Traveler, Fire Away, and When the Stars Come Out. I'm also going to recommend the music video for Save That Money and Little Dicky with Rich Homie Kwan and uh, Fetty Wap. I'm not really a fan of Little Dicky's shtick or gimmick if he was just doing music, but I think all his music videos are hilarious. I think he did it again with Save That Money. Um, check it out if you haven't watched it yet. Even if you're not a fan of his music, I think you can appreciate the video. The dude's got a great sense of humor, and I think he's playing the game really interesting, and it's kind of interesting to see and watch what happens with him. So those are my two recommendations. Check out Chris Ableton and go watch the Little Dicky video. Thanks for listening to Off The Record. If you enjoy the show, the best way to say thank you is to share this episode on social media, whether it's your Twitter, your Facebook, your Tumblr, your whatever, and just tell your friends. We just want the word to spread. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, it's at OffTheRecordFM. You can get show notes, explore old episodes at OffTheRecord.FM. If you think we should be talking about something, please let us know with the hashtag TellOTR on Twitter or ask us via Tumblr at OffTheRecord.FM. This episode was produced by Jesse Cannon and Ashley Aaron. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week.